Hello and welcome back to the hostile environment that is Romaniacs. It's been a wild week in Brexit land. We've had the forced resignation of the Home Secretary, a series of defeats for the government and the Lords, including one that our own Ian Dunst said could easily prove to be one of the most important amendments in post-war British history, and Jeremy Corbyn whipping the Labour Lords to abstain from an amendment that would have made a final say vote possible. I'm Dorian Linsky. I've got two of our regulars with me. Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain and a frontline Remainer, although she's here in a personal capacity. Hi, Naomi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, as a seasoned campaigner, did you enjoy the Conservatives' local election leaflet in Ilford with a memorable heading, what we're doing, slash have done, for ward slash area name? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So this is um, a leaflet that has gone out uh, under the candidate Mona Assan's um, name. So it is, yeah, Ilford Town is about as much as we know about this leaflet. And it's just... Number one issue we've done. Number two issue we've done with lots of holding text. I feel sorry for the agent that is, you know, probably whose head's going to roll for this. But um, wowzer. I mean, yeah. Well, of Conservatives course, really not working very hard at all in that ward for those elections. Of course, ward slash area name is a key battleground. And why don't we listen to <laughs> the valid issues slash concerns for voters in ward slash area name? <laughs> <laughs> And propose policies slash solutions. <laughs> <laughs> they are against bad things and in favour of good things. Well, we hope you all enjoy this show slash podcast. Also with us is Ian Dunn, editor of politicsco.uk. How are you doing, Ian? Hello, very well. We're going to do the Lord stuff in numbing detail later. Was <laughs> that amendment? Like you're not looking forward to it. Really. <laughs> <that>? I'm psyched. <laughs> but was that amendment really the most important one since the Second World War? Um, it could be if uh, the Commons backs it up. And if we reject the motion that comes back from the withdrawal bill, I mean, if either of those two things don't happen, then no, it's a complete irrelevance. But if both of those things happen, then, yeah, what you're doing is you're sort of strapping the government into Parliament's control for the most important decision that it will ever take. So it almost the thing is, you can cheat quite a bit by saying the most important X in the post-war era, because the way in which we're so legislatively wrapped up in the EU, any decision you made around that undoes the last 30 years of law. So it sort of by default yeah. is the most important thing there. And in this case, if those two things hold, that Commons vote and that we reject the motion, in that case, yeah, it would be. Cool. And for listeners haven't had enough of the Lords versus the Government Infinity War, Ian is also appearing on our sister podcast Big Mouth this week talking about Avengers Infinity War. What's the, what's the... I know you're going to fucking, yes. fucking do it. Here it comes. <laughs> Choo-choo. <laughs> what's... <laughs> Brexit angle on and fear to you, war. I know. You always fucking do like it's every, every time there's like a, a comics thing. You're like, what is the Brexit? So I don't know, man. There is no, there is no connection between those two things. There's nothing. But he's well, he's UKIP purple. Yeah, he think, oh, fucking here again. He thinks that Andrew. He thinks, Andrew be, loves he thinks stuff. there should be fewer people. Producer Andrew is nodding. He thinks this is a great idea. Producer Andrew is convinced that Thanos is Brexit. <laughs> but like, that just seems like kind of overdoing it, even from a Remainer point of view. They're not trying to kill half the population. <laughs> Look, also, the, the Venn diagram of our listeners and, and you know comic enthusiasts and things like this is probably not quite as great as it, it might be. It in remains this room. about five people, but we serve but them very well. You do. You <laughs> it's do. basically a diagram of Andrew's brain. <laughs> Before we get into all that, and Ian, you really let the team down there. It's an amazing double guest show this week. Later in the show, we'll be talking to Billy Bragg, who popped into the studio last week with his guitar to talk about where Brexit came from and what he thinks we can do to stop it and address the concerns that led to it. But first, we're delighted to break our year-long run of old people on the show by welcoming an actual <laughs> young person on Tremaniacs. 
Femi Oluwole is the co-founder of Our Future, Our Choice, the youth campaign for a democratic escape from Brexit, otherwise known as OFOC. Femi left a year-long internship at the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights in Vienna to fight for a new referendum, People's Vote, on Brexit. He was enraged and frustrated that the arguments against Brexit weren't being put properly, so he decided to do it himself. Hi, Femi. Welcome to Romaniac. Hi. How, are, how you? are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Yourself? Good. By How's... the way, I am a massive Marvel fan, so I, I think six people. Six, six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I and I yeah, I think I think it definitely there's definitely tie-ins to Brexit. Is it is a man driven by a very very extreme ideology who's willing to push it ahead against the will of, of most people just purely because <laughs> that he that he thinks it's the right thing and it's going to result in a lot of suffering for everyone for for, for and, and he basically he's choosing half of, half of, of existence over another which is pretty much the Brexit vote. Um, so yeah, I, I can definitely see significant parallels between Thanos and um, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Let's give you did a much give, better job of that than give, I did. I have to hand it to you. That's a big hello to our new co-host, Femi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ian. See you later. <laughs> So what made you want to quit that, that job? It was obviously something, you know, a very good job, something you really believed in as well, um, to kind of take time out from that, that path um, and take on the sort of responsibility of fighting Brexit. Well, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, uh, I, my, my background is EU law, um, and we, I've just seen my country be lied to on just the basics of EU law and sent in a completely new direction that... Every nine out of ten experts say will harm it permanently, which does create a degree of responsibility on on my part to actually do something about it. I have skills in terms of advocacy, and my background is EU law, so I should be out there setting the record straight. So things about democracy, things about EU immigration, things about the, basically the the fundamentals of the decision that was made two 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 years ago. I've been trying to correct that since. But you've been doing a lot more than that because that is sort of putting out facts, which mm. actually. You know, they may have done a few things badly, but the Strong Green campaign did keep pumping out mm. facts, 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 and that didn't sway anyone. Mm. So that's not all you've been doing. Actually, no. you know, t- tell us a bit more about the story that you tell. Uh, well, having dealt with uh, Farage on several occasions on his show um, and having pumped out the facts, I realised that, yeah, more needed to be done. Um, and so around October last year, I created Our Future, Our Choice as just basically a separate Twitter account because I needed to make a different argument. I need to make an emotional argument. And the strongest emotional argument related to Brexit is your kids do not want this future. They do not want the future that's being forced on them by Brexit. Do not do that to them. Because, quite frankly, they will resent the people that put them in that position because they're the ones who are going to be looking for jobs in that economy. They're the ones who are going to be trying to raise families in that economy, paying for mortgages in that economy. They will resent everything that went before if you don't at least give them a chance to stop this. And I interviewed you for a piece I did for the Guardian last Saturday about the People's Vote campaign and the general movement to stop Brexit. And you made this point that sort of demographically, mm. uh, it's really not long before the country becomes majority remain. Yeah. So that in terms of like the, the will of the people and the mandate, it's actually quite time limited. Yeah. Um, the will of the people argument literally has an expiration date. And that expiration date is December 2020 slash 2021. Because, and that's been calculated by the Financial Times, Peter Kellner, the pollster, and UK and the changing Europe, that by the time we have and exit the transition period, by the time Brexit actually happens, it's directly against the will of the people. So calling this a democratic success is a fallacy, because quite frankly, it's anti-democratic, because it's anti-the people. 
And what, what do you say to people who would counter that with, oh, but, you know, for every 16-year-old and 17-year-old turning 18, you've got some people who are sort of, you know, becoming middle-aged and later who become more right-wing or become, you know, more protectionist in their worldview, uh, switching from, from Remain to Leave? This wasn't so much a left versus right thing. This was more... It wasn't really... I mean, there were people on the left who thought Brexit was a good idea. People on the right who thought Brexit was a bad idea. The, the issue here is, did you believe that Brexit would economically harm the country? Do you feel um, both European and British? And quite and, and simply, if you were born after 1974, then the only adult identity that you've ever known because of the timing of the Maastricht Treaty is being both a British and an EU citizen. That is a generation that has only ever known themselves as both British mm-hmm. and EU citizens. That's not going to change in a couple of years because it's the only identity they've ever had. So all we're going to have now is more people who've only ever felt that way getting the right to vote. And I think, quite frankly, the fact that 16-year-olds were excluded for the ref- from the referendum, I'm sorry, they are economically active. They are, they're a group of people that, have the, that are working and contributing to the economy, and yet they don't have a say over the economy of this country. That is... Taxation without representation. That is, it's, it's mm-hmm. unfair. Yeah, I agree with you. Would, I mean, obviously, the, there's all this energy behind kind of, uh, you know, a difficult task, which is securing the people's vote. If that was secured, do you think there is any any chance that, that 16, 17 year olds would be, would be given the vote? Is that something that you think is attainable or is it more just a principle you want to restate? A bit of both. Um, I think we need to state that principle to put pressure on 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 Parliament to say this should this should have been given to the sixteen year olds in the first place. Do it now. Correct your correct your mistake. I saw Ofoc on stage in in Leeds um, at that protest march. Uh, one of your co-founders had voted Leave mm-hmm. um, and had, had obviously quite dramatically changed his mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know you tweet out a lot of videos where you're talking to leavers and I know that Best for Britain uh, you know talks about this a lot which is like how do you how do you create a dialogue what have you learned what seems to be the most sort of fruitful pathways and and also what what turns them off what kind of brings the barriers down okay well the positive way to do do things is firstly um, recognizing that we all wanted the same things in general we wanted a better NHS. We wanted the UK to be strong. We wanted we wanted to have a fair a fairer society. Those are things that are common to both Brexit voters and Leave voters. The moment we forget that, that's when we have a, a massively divisive um, politics in this country. We have to remember that. So when you go to them and say, "All right, what did you want? You wanted um, a a stronger, more influential Britain." Well, look at the deal that, that Theresa May is striking right now. It means that for the first two years of Brexit, we'll be following the rules of the EU, but we would have given up our seat at the table in deciding those rules. That makes us, by definition, a less sovereign country. And when you ask them that, what do they say? That's disgusting. That's not what we voted for at all. And people, there's this misconception that Remainers are happy to give up sovereignty, that, we're want, that we want the UK to be weak. No, we want to be at the table deciding the laws of Europe. And when you point out to Brexiters that... Um, that Brexit is resulting as being less sovereign, they're on your side. They they want they wanted a strong country, and Brexit is going the other direction. And the most reassuring, from a Remain standpoint, thing is that when I ask Brexit voters, "How do you think the negotiations are going?" they say terribly. When I ask them if if the negotiations result in a Brexit deal that makes us less sovereign or less well off, do you think the people, the British people, deserve a right to have the right to have a have a say on that deal? They say yes. Brexit voters. I mean, that's that's the thing. Right now, there is a an eight point lead in in, in favor of a um final a final say or, or, or a, mm-hmm. a chance for that's the people right. to review the deal. 
but that gets compared with, and this is where we get to what turns people off, there is a majority against the term second referendum. And that makes in mm. absolute that makes absolute sense. Why? Because nobody, myself included, wants a repeat of 2016. Nobody wants a situation where we we're forced we're made to vote on something where everyone was able to say, well, Brexit might mean this, Brexit might mean this, Brexit <laughs> might mean this. No. In October, we will have an actual draft treaty. You'll be able to see line by line in, bra- in black and white, what does Brexit mean? How will it affect the country? Will we be following the rules of the EU? We will, have, will we have the same access to the European market? Those are things that will become certainties in, in, at, the end, at the end of this year. So second referendum, bad. Vote on the final deal, a final say, a people's vote. That's what people want. You're out there actually talking to people, and I I don't like talking to people. Um, no, but when I'm on, um, you know, the, if you're on social media, indeed, if you're just kind of, you know, watching Newsnight, listening to the Day program, uh, it's sort of very, it's very adversarial. You know, the Leave voters that are going to are likely to kind of, you know, come at me on Twitter are not generally a reasonable bunch. Um, do you feel that there's a kind of that the impression that we get, perhaps through both the media and social media, of this kind of bitterly polarised country is actually how, how much of that do you see or not see when you're going out there actually talking to people yeah that's you're absolutely right I mean I've I've started to like people a little bit more since I became I came off social media and actually started talking to people in real life <laughs> because social media people are bad people <laughs> sometimes they're not even people yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bad I, I say that knowing that I spend my time on, on social media yeah. I'm Everyone is a worse version of themselves on social media. Uh, on in, in real life, when you talk to just reasonable Brexit voters who who do who, whose guiding star is what is best for this country, when you point out to them that that this isn't going the way that they planned, that that they're gonna it's gonna end up with a country that's less sovereign and less well off. When you point out to them that the areas that voted strongest for Leave, like the Northeast, for example, are gonna be the worst hit by Brexit, and when the, what they wanted was a more balanced country, and in fact, you're just basically rebalancing the country in favor of London and in favor of Westminster they're on your side and and they because they're they're rational and but whereas on social media i mean you only pipe up if you if you disagree with something so you're automatically going to get the most confrontational people imaginable mm. speaking to you one more thing i wanted to ask about the i mean ofoc is obviously a very good acronym mm. but then uh, another group came along for our future's sake mm. with ffs yes. which seemed a little <laughs> A little cheeky, <laughs> driving with the acronym front. Can you, because there's a lot of these groups mm. out there, and I've seen that, uh, you know, I've tried to kind of explain what they all do. Mm. What's the, the, you're both sort of talking to young voters. What's the difference in your kind of, your, your sort of backgrounds and remits, mm. the two groups? Uh, well, our future, our choice, we tend to make the youth argument more generally, as in, for us, youth is the generation that voted remain, and that's everyone under under, under 60. If you take under 60s in the, in the country as a, as a group, we voted to remain, so we're speaking for for youth in in a very broad sense. Does that mean we're young now? That means that means you're young. It means it means you've you've just been <laughs> you rejuvenated can by go Brexit. Back on the podcast anytime. <laughs> I, feel, I feel better already. My I don't. Back I don't feel young at all. <laughs> <laughs> I literally feel older now. <laughs> and FFS, uh, they are primarily student mobilisation, which is absolutely necessary, mm. um, because one of the most troubling things that we see is that. People are just as anti-Brexit as they always were, especially young people. They they think this is an absolute disaster. The problem we're finding is 
Yes, they think it's a disaster, but they've been bashed over the head with Brexit is happening, Brexit is happening, Brexit is happening. And so it's about pointing out to them that there is a way that this can be stopped, that in, in October there is going to be a vote in Parliament as to whether or not the Brexit deal is acceptable. And at that point, a Parliament that majoritarily believes that it would harm the country can then pass it back to the people in order to wash their hands of it so they don't get blamed. So Brexit can be stopped that way. So on the broad remit of oh fuck, I think what we know works well and what Mm. did work a little bit in the referendum campaign Mm. but we didn't do enough of Mm. was this appealing to the older generation. So kids talking to their parents... Mm parents talking to grandparents, that kind of thing. So um, how, how much of that are you doing? How, how are you helping other young people to have those conversations with their families? One of the things that I, I try to remember is, is try to communicate is that you don't need to convince your parents that remaining in the EU is the best thing ever. Mm. All you need to say is, mum, dad, please don't do this to me. I will be living with this for the rest of my life. It changes my identity. It removes... At my Europeanness from me. It will affect my relationship with with the rest of the of the, my, of the continent. It affects my ability to live and work in the rest of the continent. Right now, as Brits, we have the birthright to live and work in any country we choose across thirty one countries across Europe, and that's what Brexit is taking from us. Please do not cut off my opportunities in life. Please do not give me a future that I actively voted against and do not want. So, I re- I respect that I may never change your views but please don't do this to me. That argument, I believe, will Very, resonate. very powerful, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Femi. I'll be helping us through the woods of Brexit in the rest of the show, but before we get there, a few very quick reminders. Firstly, Britain is going to the polls this week, and it's incredibly important that you have your democratic say that so many have fought and died for, by which, of course, we mean voting for Romaniacs in the Listener's Choice category at the British Podcast Awards. <laughs> Just go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote and enter Romaniacs. You could win two tickets to the event and be showered with champagne when Ed Miliband beats us yet again. And the ghost of the Pankhurst will smile down on you for exercising your democratic right. He's been treating. He's been trying to get um, listeners to, to photo their vote and then they'll take them to the show if they win it. They're going to pick a name out of a hat. What is this bullshit? That's, that's called treating under electoral commission law. Quite. Yeah. Mm. He just can't stop, can he? He's just like... He fucked up the Labour membership system. <laughs> now look at what he's done. Oh, he, likes, <laughs> he likes winning now, doesn't he? Oh, it's all win, win, win. <laughs> Secondly, if you enjoy the show, and why wouldn't you, then remember you can support Romaniacs via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Pledge us a few pounds every month and you'll get smart mugs, T-shirts, bags and a priceless sense of being on the right side of history. Go to patreon.com slash Romaniacscast to find out more. And finally, if you're not all podcast out yet, the second episode of Anger Management with Nick Clegg is available now. Produced by our backroom team and hosted by the former Deputy Prime Minister, it's a fortnightly look at the age of rage and how we get reason back on top. Nick's guest this week is George Osborne. And we hear they recorded the show standing up in a power stance for the whole hour. <laughs> it's quite a listen. You can find Anger Management with Nick Clegg on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and all your favourite podcast apps. OK, let's get into the week in Brexit. First up, the House of Lords continues to beat the government like a dirty carpet. This week, <laughs> peers voted to kill off the prospect of any no-deal Brexit by enabling Parliament to force the government to reopen negotiations with the EU if David Davis's deal is voted down. This was the ninth countum defeat that the government had suffered in the Lords over the withdrawal bill. The rage of Brexiters was a beauty to behold, with disgraced former Defence Secretary Liam Fox claiming the Lords were thwarting the will of the British people, and the Mail calling the Lords a house of unelected wreckers, which sounds like a great Electric Clash record from 2002. <laughs> house of unelected wreckers! <laughs> 
<laughs> but it wasn't all good news for Remainers. A Lib Dem amendment calling for a final say referendum was defeated when the Labour front bench abstained, much to the fury of people who observed these things closely. Like Ian. Um, Ian, the, you, you met, we, we mentioned a little bit of the, the implications here. Does the sort of rebelliousness of the Lords in general indicate a, a real sea change in Brexit? Because it seems like the Brexiters are, are very worried. Yeah, they are. It's also interesting to note how little they have to use in their arguments. Like if you heard uh, Liam Fox on the Today programme this week. Oh, yeah. It's like a fucking broken toy. Like he just he, he has the one phrase, just as you're thoughting the word of the people, and he just repeated it in various formulations over and over. I actually thought he'd yeah. been psychologically broken. And he's he was one of the most vociferous voices against any House of Lords reform. <laughs> oh and is now criticizing. Like, oh my god, over. seeing all these Tories rush out going, Well the first thing they, they, we, we need to do abolish the Lords. <laughs> They've gone a bit mad because they're like, call their blood yeah. call another election yeah. and then abolish the House of Lords. <laughs> and it's like, what? Mm. You know, maybe that's what happens when you're psychologically broken. They are in trouble here because the Lords are, they're probably going further than I thought. I was expecting maybe sort of 10 things would come back to the Commons. I think we're probably going to end up with more than that. And But also it's more of a sort of attitudinal thing. You just, they're looking bullish. They're looking like they don't care in the same way that those Tory rebels look like they started owning the concept of, of being a rebel MP mm-hmm. after that uh, vote in December on Dominic Greaves' amendment. Now, you start putting these things together, and I think you get something quite interesting. Dominic Groves' amendment was very, very effective in cutting off ministers' ability to use statutory instruments going up to the withdrawal bill. Statutory instruments uh, sort of basically turn ministers into little mini parliaments, just being able to do whatever they like. And he started cutting off their ability to do it on that side. This starts saying, this is what happens if a series of three conditions aren't met. What happens, the consequence is that parliament takes control. It takes control over from the government, says, we can dictate to you what you do next. The three conditions are basically, do they come back with the motion? They, they've put dates on this stuff. So, I mean, it's, they need to come with the withdrawal agreement to the Commons on November the, by November the 30th, 2018. You need a royal assent on an act of parliament by January 31st, 2019. And you need a withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU 27 by February 28th, 2019. Now, that last part is crucial because what that last part does is it says there can be no no deal. Yep. You cannot afford to not have a deal. And if you do come back with no deal, if there's no deal by that point, Parliament takes back control. It also means on the first of those three, that if they were to vote down that resolution, Parliament then again takes control. Mm. Now, the reason this is so important is because we know there is that black hole of chaos that goes from the autumn to the spring if we vote down that proposition in Parliament. Now, what this does is start to put parliamentary control around it. When we start talking about another referendum... This is a key thing. You can imagine lots of people there in Parliament going, not very happy with this. The thing's been voted down, but the only possible way I can see of making any progress, and you could see Brexiters and Remainers making this point, is to go, well, look, then I guess we're going to have to throw it open to the country. And that suddenly mm. becomes a much more viable and credible option than it may seem right now. When I spoke to James McGrory at Open Britain, he said that one of the problems that the, you know, the Remain side as it is now has is how to portray your opponents, which is, are they, you know, are they fanatics? Are they reckless? Are they incompetent? Because, and he says, they're all three, but it's really hard to say to voters that someone can be, can be all of those things because you think, well, fanatics are normally quite competent. Are they? They're normally quite organised. People associate, I mean, many fanatics in history have not. They've been, they've been terrible, but you know what I mean? It's, it's hard to kind of get that message across that they're, they're mm. kind of scary, but they're also useless. Well, you know? I mean, you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's both competent and a fanatic, and then you've got people like... Um, David Davis, who just doesn't seem to care about anything. Um, <laughs> Given up. Yeah. Yeah. Given up. He's checked out. Yeah, he, I mean, 
the absolute <laughs> cavalier attitude, just so relaxed that he gives when he's when he's in, before the select committees. It's it's painful that he can. I mean, this is a while ago now, but when he sat in 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 that select committee and said, "All right, so David Davis, so have you got a, an impact assessment on this sector? No, this this sector, no." Oh, you can just assume that I haven't got any for any of them. <laughs> what? <laughs> you are in charge of this whole process. You literally are telling us that you not only don't know how Brexit would affect us, but don't really care? I also think we don't have to worry too much about painting them as anything, because I think they do a pretty good job of it themselves. Mm. And also, as Remainers, the people we've got to convince actually aren't really watching Newsnight and listening mm-hmm. to the Today programme mm. and hearing any of this, right? So that's a sort of slight... It's it's something that you need to think about, but if we want to win that meaningful vote and then win the referendum, but people it's say, yeah, but yeah. You, you know, you've got to do that. So, I mean, my message to everybody is that you've got <clears> to, <throat> got to, got to keep writing to your MPs on this. Mm. That's what matters. So don't get too distracted about painting anyone as anything. Um, and you can, you know, obviously, <clears throat> every listener should sign up for BestBritain.org if they want to find out, um, you know, is updates on, on what's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, totally personal. But, um, Asking for a friend. <laughs> but on the amendments, I think the meaningful vote amendment will go through the Commons. So that, that amendment that's come down from this, I think that probably will go through but we cannot be complacent about it um, and don't don't get sort of sidetracked by oh we've got to paint people as sort of incompetent villains or fanatical villains or whatever right to your MP but I think you're right that make the, them vote that through it's almost like they the, the hardline Brexiters they're almost acting as if nobody outside a very small group is paying attention because mm. Jacob Rees-Mogg wrote this remarkable piece about in sort of praise of Trump and going Trump is Brexit Britain's best mm. friend and you mm. think that anybody who was kind of like reading the room would not be the most toxic politician on mm. the world stage mm. on your side. And so it seems actually that there's the argument that, that that's happening among these these people is not directed at but voters. Th- th- no. There is a there is a serious disconnect between <clears throat> the proponents of Brexit, the loudspeakers like Farage and Jacob Rees Mogg, and the actual voters of Brexit. Mm. Um and what the most infuriating thing that I regularly hear from the loud voices is Brexit voters are happy to be economically worse off as long as they get Brexit. That is the fundamentalists like Jacob Rees-Mogg claiming that all the voters of Bre- all Brexit voters are just as fundamentalist as he is. No, Brexit was a vote that came from people who have been screwed over by the system, who are very much struggling to get by, who thought that Brexit was going to be- make their lives better. To then argue that they're okay being worse off for ideological reasons. That's the disconnect. Mm. And it's just not okay that the politicians who, let's face it, mm. Jacob Reese Mogg, privileged, and Nigel Farage, privileged, Boris Johnson, privileged. These are the people claiming that the people who've been disadvantaged are okay being more disadvantaged for their ideology. Well, yesterday, I think we had, um, that would be Tuesday, um, there was Douglas Carswell, Charterhouse old boy and mm. former fund mm. manager, raging against the establishment and the elites. He was one of the people that thought that, that Theresa May should call the Remainers call the rebels bluff and call an election and crush the saboteurs. <laughs> that um, went really well last time. That went really well last time. Second time lucky. But for me, there was a vote for, um, there's a amendment proposed on the final say on this, this people's vote, which um, with Labour front benches, it would have passed. Uh, I know that this is kind of like a, this has become a kind of weekly theme on the show. How do you feel about, particularly if you're talking about, you know, demographics here and obviously young voters are, vastly favour Labour. Is, is is the Labour position more frustrating with each week or do you feel that, that optimistic that it's sort of turning in a good direction? 
Labour has been the the, cra- the most frustrating part of this for me because um, Jeremy Corbyn should be uh, my idol. I mean, he. I mean, my background is human rights. He's one of the few people that's really, really championing human rights and always has done in the UK Parliament. Um, I am a very much in for economic economic fairness. I am for pretty much everything that Jeremy Corbyn believes in. But on Brexit, he seems to be dropping the ball significantly. He has said plainly that he knows that Labour voters and Labour members are over, overwhelmingly pro-EU. That the, that his 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 fan his fan base, his people that put him in office, put him in in his position right now, are pro-EU. And he said in the in the 2017 um, elections that he is about giving. A, he was elected to give a voice to his members and voters. Yet he's not doing that. He knows that his that his voters are pro EU. He knows that the people that are put that are put in there are pro EU, and yet, despite the fact that Brexit already fails his six tests, one of which is that we need to have all the same uh, economic benefits as both single market and customs union, despite the fact that Brexit fails his own tests, he's not saying what he's going to do about it. I understand that it's difficult for for Jeremy Corbyn to come out and say and simply say I oppose Brexit. Brexit must be mm. stopped. That would be difficult for him. He doesn't. He, but he doesn't need to do that. All he he needs to do is say, "I will protect you, the British people, from any Brexit deal that doesn't meet my tests, that will leave you worse off by allowing you, the British people, to vote on it." That's all he needs to say. It means he, do, he doesn't need to oppose Brexit himself. And even in, even when the referendum comes, all he doesn't need to pick a side. All he needs to say is, "If it doesn't meet my tests, the people need to vote on it in order for this to go ahead." But he's not doing that. Ian, could you could you game this out for us? Like, if this uh, had passed and then it went to the Commons, would the Commons be able to reject a vote, a people's vote? Of course, yeah. But would I mean they would they would well, be I able to? They, they, they almost undoubtedly this, would have. Yeah. This, you think they would have? Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't the optics of that be pretty bad? I don't know. I think they could have gotten away with yeah. that pretty easily. And I, look, to me, the, the time is not now. I would have obviously put that thing forward, and I would have voted for it if it was in front of me. In order that, if there is another referendum. It is going to happen because it is enough of a least bad option for a sufficiently high number of people. It's not going to happen because all the people who believe in it want it to take place. Yeah. It'll be because it's an insurance policy for both sides of the debate. And that is the context in which it would take place. It's just not going to happen now. And if it had come to the Commons, they would have rejected it by a much higher margin than it got rejected by the Lords. Which was a, an argument doing the rounds in the Remain camp last week. It was, do we push hard to get the mm. Lords to vote this through or not? Because... Is the Commons ready to accept it yet? And the, there was a, a pretty strong feeling amongst the Remain movement that the Commons was not ready yet to, right. to be. So we need to do much yeah. more work, like as Femi is doing, getting public opinion changed to give strength to the, the Commons to, to, to vote it through. Yeah, it's always worth firing off the shot. You know, I mean, they did the right thing by chucking it up there. It was just I don't think anyone really expected it to get through and it wouldn't have gone anywhere even if it had. Ian, what did we make of the Brexit Ultra's latest ultimatum to May over the idea of a customs partnership? Uh, it's just a, one in a series of ultimatums. Yeah, it's just them. I mean, they are fucking off their tits. So the customs partnership itself is t- total lunacy. It makes no sense on any possible basis. The fact that they're going to die in a ditch over this actually tells you something interesting psychologically about where they're at. They are right now in this war cabinet. This war ca- they love the, the shit of the ideas, the more extraordinary and military and sexy the names become around yeah. the whole thing. They have the same with max fact, maximum facilitation, which really means we won't check the lorries. <laughs> that's, that's really <laughs> what that means. And hybrid, which is the customs partnership thing, which is just 
total nonsense. Is it apprentice team name brainstorm? Exactly, yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> and at the end of it, it's a rotten tomato. Like That's ultimately yeah. what you get. So this idea was when they put forward in a position paper in the customs union last autumn. They presented it to Brussels. Brussels said, no, you're off your rocket, mate. You can fuck off. None of it works on any basis whatsoever. Imagine that you're going to, so you're going to basically say to the EU, we're going to have one customs sort of border. If it's 10%, say the UK's got 10% on tomatoes, EU's got 8% on tomatoes. Canada sends us a tomato. You then charge them to 10%. You send the tomato ends up in Barcelona somewhere. Somehow you know that it's ended up in Barcelona. Then you pay the other 2% back to Canada. Now just imagine. There's only two, there, there are two ideas for this, was to use a tracking mechanism, <laughs> the, the likes of which have not been invented yet. What, on the tomato? I don't want to yeah. eat a microchip Presumably tomato. Presumably all the fucking tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> right, well, you turn you off veganism. <laughs> that, that needs to be I a might slogan. take a chlorinate. I would eat a microchip chip tomato. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I might go a for a chlorinated chicken. chicken over there. No. <laughs> or you can have the receipt. So wherever it gets sold, you'd then take that receipt <clears> and send it over to the government, claim about that. So, I mean, imagine, just imagine that. And this is on products that you can see it go all the way through. Imagine if it's something like sugar, where the sugar comes in, certain tariff rate, you then put the sugar in a cake, you sell the cake on somewhere outside the country, that's a different tariff rate. Just try to imagine the degree of complexity and completely bonkers and bureaucratic nonsense that you'd be dealing with there. And this is the government position which the Brexiters are now attacking. But of course, they don't need to attack it because no one in Brussels was going to accept the thing in the first place. So the fact that they are in a room right now in the closing stages of Brexit, arguing over an imaginary proposal which no one would ever actually put down is the most beautiful demonstration of where they have ended up. They've got no ideas. They've got no idea of how to deal with the problem that Brussels has presented them with on the backstop. And therefore, they're in that room with Theresa May losing their minds. Cast your mind back to the misty, distant past of last Sunday night when someone finally took responsibility for Theresa May's hostile environment policy and the Windrush scandal. That person was, of course, not Theresa May, but Amber Rudd, who at least had the decency not to resign five minutes after we'd recorded a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) May replaced with Sajid Javid instead. We've been through all the politics of this, but uh, what are the implications for Brexit, if any? I think this is a bit of a difficult one to call because we know at his heart he is a proper Brexit sympathiser, but he's also sort of a ruthlessly pragmatic kind of person as well. Mm. And I think he's going to, you know, recognise that complete fucking car crash that is probably happening right now as 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 Ian uh, just explained um and you know the the resignation barely disguises the fact that the Tories are now in a very parlous position uh Theresa May has been as you, you know, mentioned exposed as the true architects of these deportation policies and that isn't going to be resolved by rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic he's also like a big old Ayn Rand fan who reads out his favorite scene twice a year or something um, Ian, it said that Rudd was a moderating voice in Cabinet. She was, you know, sort of holding May back from the worst excesses, you know, mm. a sort of secret, very secret liberal. But you uh, wrote a piece saying that there there wasn't any evidence for that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's been 18 months or so that everyone mm. writes these op-eds, perpetual op-eds about how she's the liberal conscience of the government. And she's it's just like, it's been 18 months now. There was never any fucking evidence for it in the first place. There's no evidence for it now. She's done nothing that we can see. In fact, all of the private communication that we can see between her and May was the most horrific, draconian, authoritarian nonsense of the mm. highest order. Mm. And then we get presented with, oh, but, you know, but, but, but don't worry, I'm sure she's whispering into her ear coming up with a more sort of pragmatic Brexit policy. And you're like, well, where is the more pragmatic Brexit policy? The last time I saw, they were still pursuing the kind of complete nonsense we spent the last half an hour describing. So on that basis, I can't really see what we've lost. We may potentially have gained someone on the backbenches <clears throat> 
who's willing on those very tight votes to go against. I, have to, I mean, Naomi's making a sceptical face, and I think you're right to, in that I, I, I'm not sure that we will. I, don't, I can't I mean, really see her voting for a customs union. Greening no. and Morgan were mm. sort of sacked. This was, this was a, a genuine, it felt much more like a genuine resignation than a sacking. I didn't get the sense, in the same way I did with, with the others, that there's bad blood, particularly between May and yeah, Rudd, and she might right. be thinking about a comeback at some point. And so I, I, I just don't want to bank that one yet as, as somebody that will... will become a Tory rebel on those key votes. And do we think Rudd leaving kind of, you know, Manchester sort of staunch the wound of this scandal? Or is is it going to roll on? It shouldn't, but it probably will, because that's the way the pack operates. As you know, there's a scalp, there's a kind of a closure, and off you go. I mean, this stuff has been going on for years. You know, this is about turning people into border guards, basically to get them to report to the state, their own neighbours. That policy is not going anywhere. There's been no attempt to change it. I mean, Sajid Javid is changing the branding, although he's not even really doing that because the compliant environment stuff was actually stuff that Rudd changed the branding for. So I very much doubt this is the end of it happening. I imagine it is the end of us talking about it, and that'll be the big tragedy. Just to put this whole Windrush thing into concrete Brexit terms, EU migrants make up 5% of our population, 10% of our doctors which means that EU immigration is keeping the NHS afloat. And since the Brexit vote, we've seen doctors leaving, nurses leaving, we've seen nurse nurse registration from EU countries drop, and one in five doctors plans to leave. So this government, which is tasked with keeping the NHS alive, had one job. Show EU migrants, show migrants from other countries that they are welcome, that they will be treated with respect, and that their rights will be protected. Windrush. That is a failure. Um, so EU migrants, EU doctors that would be considering registering here or considering leaving uh, have been shown that if we don't think you're British enough, we might send you away. Um, and that applies to your friends, that applies to um, your kids, it applies to your future, future generations who won't necessarily be doctors but will still be living here. If we don't think you're British enough, your rights aren't really protected because you're not the really ones we're looking out for. That's the message that we sent. So the NHS in Brexit, it's just going to get worse. You almost yeah. couldn't have asked for it to be a more direct comparison, could you? I mean, the mm-hmm. Windrush was defined by, you don't worry, you don't need the documents, there's exemptions mm-hmm. for you in law, it'll mm-hmm. be fine. 50 years later, it turns out it's mm-hmm. not so fine. Mm-hmm. And exactly the same with EU citizens. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, you're here under free movement, exactly mm-hmm. as they came under free movement. Mm-hmm. Exemptions for you, don't need to worry about it. Maybe it turns out that later on it won't be so fine, and Brussels has certainly taken notice of that. And, and it was those Windrush generation people that were staffing our NHS when they came over. You know, of lo- lots of here. people had was, Jamaican mm-hmm. midwives. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, exact direct com- comparison. This country's terrible. It's increasingly the realisation that we're going to do. <laughs> Finally, a small follow-up on something from last week's show with David Lammy. Listener and accidental tariff nerd. <laughs> I love the idea that you can become one accidentally. Jim Cornelius. Believe me, you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what's happened? I know all about tariffs. Uh, Jim Cornelius tweeted us with some fascinating and really deep EU trade stuff. Jim told us, you said that the UK turned its back on the Commonwealth when it joined the EEC. Then David spoke of the EU impoverishing Caribbean banana growers. But, Jim explains, in the original Treaty of Rome, the colonies of the founding nations had associate membership of the EEC with tariff-free access. access. When Britain joined, African, Caribbean and Pacific former colonial nations, or ACP countries, including ours, got preferential access to EEC markets. And the whole thing was only overturned when banana giants... Another good phrase. (laughs) Like Dole and Del Monte complained to the WTO that those nations were getting preferential treatment from the EU while Latin America didn't. Let's go to the next Avengers movie, Avengers Banana Giants. (laughs) 
Eventually, the Caribbean ACPs acquired new agreements which gave them duty-free and quota-free access to European markets for all goods starting in 2015. So, from all this, we can conclude two things. One, we got it a bit wrong. And two, we have the smartest listeners on the planet, and Jim Cornelius is Remainer of the Week. So... Fair point. He checked our facts for us. Don't anyone else start getting the idea that that's something they should do on a regular <laughs> basis. <laughs> We'd be fucked. Generally, just assume we're right about everything, I think. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute with Billy Bragg. Now for a quick commercial read from our friends at Everymatic, the boutique travel company that everyone can afford. The Brexit countdown is ticking and you need a holiday. But who knows which passport queue will all be going through this time next year. We know exactly where you should go to exercise your freedom of movement. Greece is the holiday destination for the well-travelled Romaniac with all the ancient culture you can handle and beautiful beaches too. And you should book with our friends at Everymatic, the boutique travel concierge that everyone can afford. Alex and Stevie at Everymatic will build a fantastic Greek holiday around what you want, whatever your budget. Our producer, Andrew Harrison, has been using Everymatic for years. Andrew, what's the story? Well, people think boutique travel is only if you're an oligarch with a gold-plated toilet. (laughs) It's not. It should be for everyone in the free and equal Europe. And Alex and Stevie are brilliant at doing a handmade holiday. They'll find out what you like, what you're into. Um, You know, if you're into culture and food, they will show you Athens for insiders, incredible restaurants, fantastic uh, Mm. cultural experiences. If you're into beaches, they'll know the island inside out and they'll find the one that's right for you. They'll build the whole thing around your budget and your ideas. They are particularly good at helping you to discover the Greece that isn't in the brochures. With Everymatic, we've been to Paros and Antiparos, Naxos, Seriphos, places we never thought we'd go and it's always fantastic. So we recommend it heartily. I am so booking this weekend, especially (laughs) because it's raining in London right now. Drop them an email at alex at everymatic.com and tell her Romaniacs has sent you. Whatever your budget, they're going to fix you up with the best holiday you've ever had. That's alex at everymatic.com and tell her Romaniacs sent you. My mother was half English and I'm half English too I'm a great big bundle of culture tied up in the red, white and blue I'm a fine example of your Essex man Well familiar with the Hindustan Cos my neighbours are half English and I'm half English too, yeah My breakfast was half English, and so am I, you know. I had a plate of Marmite soldiers washed down with a cappuccino. And I have a veggie curry about once a week. The next day I fry up as bubble and squeak, cause my appetite's half English, and I'm half English too. Britannia, she's half English. She speaks Latin at home. (laughs) And St George was born in the Lebanon. How he got here, I don't know. Those three lions on your shirt never sprung from England's dirt. Them lions are half English and I'm half English too. Them lions are half English. And so's our football team. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm half English too. Here's your World Cup song. 
We've got another special guest on the show this week. We've been after him for ages. We're glad to have finally pinned him down. <laughs> He's making, just, he's making Ian laugh. He's encouraging me to play the piano, which is something oh, right. that I physically cannot do. So. <laughs> Never stop me. <laughs> Billy Bragg is neither a miner or a docker or a railwayman between the wars, but he did play them in a song back in the day. He's a musician, an author, a public speaker, co-organiser of the left field stage at Glastonbury, and he's just explained to city financiers how to rebuild a society. society. Uh, <laughs> the 80s way of saying it. In a lecture at the Bank of England. One of his new songs captures the spirit of the present day. It's called Full English Brexit from his new album Bridges Not Walls and we'll be hearing it later. Hello Billy, welcome to Romaniacs. Great to be here, Dorian. What did the Bank of England make of you? Oh, it was really interesting. I mean, that, I mean, they invited me because they're trying to get people inside from, you know, out of the city of London to give them a, a different uh, perspective on things. They had Grace and Perry a couple of months ago. Huh. And... Um, Oh, I suffer from the same problem, you know, the typical, the classic sort of um, echo chamber problem. How do you how do you get to find people that you you don't necessarily agree with? So um, I thought, yeah, and there was, a few, there was a few ideas knocking around I had that I thought would be really good to try and synthesise them into four thousand words. It would be good for me, a good challenge for me, if you like. So yeah, I took it on. I mean, I've, I've for a long time had concerns about accountability. In the sense that I think in, a, in, in the post-ideological world that we live in, when we're looking for something to replace what we used to refer to as socialism, rather than saying it's dead. I mean, it, you know, the language of Marx arguably is dead, but the problems that he was talking about haven't been properly addressed still. So we still got to find a way to get to grips with them. So I talked in my, in my lecture about getting back to basics with ideas like accountability. So trying to bring that in on a number of levels, really, because I think, you know, obviously holding um, our politicians to account is relatively straightforward. Holding capitalism to account is a little bit more difficult. But I do think we should do that. Tony Benn's famous five questions. What power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you wield it? Who are you accountable to? And how do we get rid of you? He, he kind of developed them for use in democracy. In fact, he, he said them in a speech against the European Union. Uh, oh, the carpet. No. Yeah, that's when, first, that's when he first came up with it. It's weird. I, no. I did some research on this and it was in the debate about uh, the bill for uh, the referendum, oh, the original right. referendum. Yeah. Um, but if, if we really want to find out what kind of economy we live in, then we need to apply those five questions to those who have economic power over us as well. Because I think part of the... Um, Brexit vote, the Leave vote, has been about people who feel that they are not listened to, their voice isn't heard. We live in a very centralised, politically centralised uh, uh, society, but also the, uh, the economic power, the decisions, economic decisions are taken, often not even in our country, abroad. That's the problem that we need to face. A lot of your songs are... I mean, they're, they're, they're individuals rather than, rather than slogans. There is a lot of kind of uh, compassion and attempt to understand people that you may not uh, agree with. And in Full English Brexit, you've, you've got the sort of voice of a Leave voter who's, who sort of insists they're not racist, but they're confused by change. They feel that nobody's listening to them. Now, it seems to me that there, there was, there's obviously currents of racism and xenophobia involved. How much do you buy this sort of the left behind by globalisation diagnosis for, for that result? Well, I come from a place called Barking and Dagnum. And when I left school, Fords uh, was employing 40,000 people. And, and then probably half as many again in ancillary companies around there. I mean, I, I was basically, after I failed my 11 plus, I was educated to work at Fords. And when I didn't, said I didn't want to do that, they, they literally, the, the careers officer said, well, here's the leaflets for the Army, the Navy and the Air Force, son, good luck. <laughs> you know, it was that. So now, 
what's happened in Barking and Dagenham, because the factory's more or less, I think, I don't think they're even employing a tenth of that number of people. They're not making cars anymore. So the, the, the pride has gone from that place. There was a certain pride in, in, and community in, involved in the car making. And there was also the ability to take immigrants, employ them, and then give them enough money to send them somewhere leafy. You know, when I was really young, it was Irish in our street. They worked at the car factory. They went somewhere leafy. Then it was people from the Caribbean, then people from the Indian subcontinent. That's all finished as well. And on top of that, Barking and Dagenham has the lowest house prices anywhere in Greater London, probably anywhere in the southeast. So when you mix all those things together with a population that was previously really well looked after because the, because the unions were so well organised in Fords. Barking and Dagenham Council provided a lot of positive things, education, leisure, um, apprenticeships, all those kind of things. They're gone. And people feel that they are not so much left behind, but left high and dry, and nobody's listening to them. I mean, that's what the... the when the, You probably remember a couple of years ago when the BNP won 12 seats on the council. Mm. I mean, I spoke to someone who was there. They only put up 12 candidates. So I was someone who was at the count that night at the council. If they'd have put up a full slate, they'd have taken the council. You know, that's, that's partly a result of Tony Blair saying we don't have to worry about the white working class. They've got no one to vote for. But the corollary of that is that we organised, we got together with people, and then when the next elections came, we wiped them out. Mm. And, you know, that's the same white working class before we can call them all racist, you know. It, it restored my trust in the working class, especially when there had to be a rerun because Richard Barnbrook, uh, the candidate against Richard Barnbrook was a lollipop lady and you can't run for the council if you're a council employee. <laughs> so they, they had to rerun it when nobody was there and he still lost. He was their, high, <laughs> he was their high, highest profile guy. So it yeah. wasn't just all us outsiders. I don't really count myself as an outsider in Barking, but I, I know what people mean when they say it. It wasn't just out us outsiders, people realised that whatever the British National Party was offering it, it wasn't really going to be helpful for the community. So I kind of trust the white working class to make that decision. But I do understand when they say that, that nobody listens to them. And I understand also when they say this doesn't feel like my country because in the 1980s, I remember that feeling. I know what that feels like when the, your country is going in the absolute opposite direction to the way you think it should be doing. And you wake up the morning after Thatcher's scored another landslide, you're looking at people on the bus feeling like a total alien. So if we're going to overcome Brexit, if we're going to stop it, or at the very least mitigate its circumstances, we're going to have to convince some of those people who did vote leave to think again and to, and to um, you know, recognise what the problems for themselves and for their families and for, the, for what they want. But we're not going to do that by keep pointing fingers at them and, and calling them racist and, and, you know, saying they don't care about anything. They, they do care. What they care about is people hearing their voice. And whether we like it or not, for them, Brexit was the first time they got a result that they felt they owned. And if we want to, if we want to get it back from them, we're going to have to find some accommodation with them, some um, empathy about their sense of, of not feeling that they belong anymore. I'm not talking about racism. You know, wherever we find racism, we have to condemn it. But there are a lot of people out there who just don't feel they're getting a fair break anymore. From, from the way the economy is put together. And, you know, that, that needs, definitely, definitely needs uh, um, addressing at the very least. But more than that, it needs something doing about it. Now, it's very complicated. I appreciate that. But I think that's really where, rather than expecting to go back to how things were before with the European Union, which did have its problems in terms of the way the economy was run, I think we really should be talking about uh, putting forward our idea of how the European Union could be different and more responsive to people.
you know, a sort of reform and uh, remain kind of argument rather than just remain. I think that's a, a sheer argument that, that runs up against the Lever's sheer argument. There's mm. no bridging argument. Mm. And I think, I think remain and reform is what we should be talking about. Rather than having a go at them all the time, we should be making examples of how the European Union can help them and their kids and how we can deal with the big problems in the world by working with one another rather than being isolated on our own outside of all the, the big decision-making process. Do you feel things are going quite well in, in that kind of respect? Do you, I mean, in two ways. I mean, do you, do you still feel Brexit stoppable? And also, do you feel that there's enough sort of content to that kind of idea of we can stop this while still having something positive to say to people who voted leave and still making an offer? I just threw a one lot of, of questions what, you. did, you. and I'll try and, <laughs> try and jump on them. The, one of the great frustrations about this debate for us is that the, the Tories have still not defined what it's going to mean for most people. You know, we're really not that further down the line than we were on, you know, a couple of years ago on the morning after the, the referendum. We don't, none of us really have a clear idea what it's going to look like. And until we do, I don't think there'll be a big movement in public opinion. But I do think that uh, whatever the outcome is, the status quo is, is not an option. There's no going back to what there was before. There's, there's, been, a, there's been a break there, like a fracture. And if we want to get to a, a situation where we still have free movement of people, uh, where we still have the single market and those things, we've got to make a case, a positive case, for a future in which is a lot more connected with people's experience. Uh, and you know, a lot of people have been talking for a long time before this, before the referendum, about Europe being more about people and less about profit. Mm. It's often there's a sort of caricature that the Leave uh, campaign had all the um, emotion and this kind of sense of, you know, Britishness and Englishness, um, and the Remain campaign just had kind of like spreadsheets. Mm. But... <laughs> Uh, on the day after the referendum, we, we were both at, um, at Glastonbury. We were, yeah. And I was having a, I was just in a foul mood. Mm. And I was... I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. Not your mood. <laughs> I remember um, my own mood. My own mood. I, was at the, I was at the back of the tent, so I'm sure my foul mood didn't... Maybe it reached you that far. But I remember what, in watching, and you, were, you made a, a little speech about it and played uh, I Keep Faith. And I was quite teary at that point. And all that day, the whole weekend, actually, there was this intense emotion, yeah. which perhaps had not come across in the campaign that yeah. it, it wasn't people just it wasn't people worrying about the economy no no it was people genuinely feeling yeah. like oh my god what's happening yeah. to this country and well, whatever that, that a, needs to come out more that was a very interesting gig actually because um, that you know it was the Friday night after the, the referendum vote had gone down in the morning and, I, and when I went on left field was a bit like triage for a lot of people I think, <laughs> that weekend and it was one of those weird gigs where when you go on stage it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it happened the night Margaret Thatcher resigned. You go on stage and the audience makes the noise they normally make when you come off. <laughs> and you know you've got to start right up there. And I did, you know, I did, I, I mean, I, I think everybody was trying to make sense of it in real time. I was from where I was standing, and that's the feeling I got back off the audience that night. And my son, who was there watching me, said, wow, Dad, he's... Never seen you do that to an audience before. I said, "Son, that wasn't me. I wasn't. I wasn't riding. You know, I was. I was. I wasn't driving it. I was riding it. It's just that mood in there. But that's the thing. I think this is not something rational to talk about, like QE. This is something intangible about who we are and what kind of people we are. So in that sense, it's more akin to the Windrush situation, where we feel passionately about the way these people have been treated. And I think we, those of us on the Remain side need to recognise more that this is a, a, an intangible thing. It's an intangible cultural kind of thing. It's an intangible political kind of thing. It's not something that will immediately be uh, put into 
stark perspective by a rational argument. You must have found that already. Mm. You know, it means something to people why they voted, and it, it may be not not a, a nationalist thing, but just a, a I mean, we, in many ways, ways a democratic thing. I voted for this. Uh, and for the first time it's happened. We have to recognise that for some people, a lot of people went out and voted before and never voted, you know, so we have to recognise that if we're hoping to win the 20%, 25%, we need to come back and, and believe in the European Union. But to, to, go back to, to go back to the status quo would be like the Americans running Hillary again against Trump. Mm. It ain't going to happen, no matter how great Hillary was mm. and how, what a positive role model she would be. And how so many people, myself included, would have liked to have seen a woman president. If they put Hillary up again, that's been that we're past that. And I think we, we t in terms of the our relationship with the European Union, as was before the referendum, we're past that. The status quo, we can't we can't go back to that. Well, after the referendum, I remember I, I was sort of thinking about the book you wrote some years ago. I can't remember exactly when it came out. But 2006. Progressive, Progressive Patriot. There was a lot there about this idea of kind of harnessing the the emotion. Of you know, intangible of cultural heritage is actually yeah. a real thing recognised by the United Nations. It's not a, something I just <laughs> dreamed up for your podcast. It's actually a real <laughs> important thing, and and by um, looking at what they what they talk about in it, you start to see things that you, that's always been there that you've never really recognised because of the intangible nature, duh, uh, that you've never really <laughs> you know. So it's an it's a very interesting. Um, Concept and it has very very deep roots. It's, it's it's mixed up with the thing that is I think much much more important than nationality and ethnicity and race, which is belonging. Belonging, I think, is what holds us all together as a society, wherever we're from, wherever our grandparents are from, whatever. You know, it's about a sense of belonging. You know, St George St George's Day just passed belongs to everybody who was born in England and everyone who's chosen to make it their home. And we who were born here. I like think otherwise people where they could have gone around the world and they've chosen to come and live with us. You know, that's a that's a positive, positive thing, including St George. It was from the Lebanon. But does the does does the left struggle with how to do how to sort of do patriotism right? That sometimes it seems mm. that very quickly you end well, up in a kind of the land of sort of legitimate concerns and then it suddenly seems to be sort of pandering. But the idea, which of course you but I mean Orwell was talking about it, yep. you know, decades ago, it's yep. like it's an important idea because it's such a the intangible mm. cultural heritage is so powerful. Well, but it seems the right continues yeah. to sort of own it. Well, it's like the way the Tories can't quite really do empathy. <laughs> yeah, and when they do, you never, <laughs> you never believe them, right? Yeah. You never believe them when they do it. They try really hard. I mean, you know, all the Windrush, Windrush, yeah. Amber Rudd, and and all that stuff. So, in in my in my case, I would I would say that uh, we you know we have that problem with patriotism. But you'd think, being the left, we'd understand because we understand deeply that there's more than one type of socialism we would understand also there's more than one type of patriotism mm. i think of myself as a patriot you know i love my country sometimes i hate it but mostly i love it i love its people i love its everything about it um except those bits that get on my nerves it's like a family you know there's always bits you really look forward to and other bits you you know world cup's coming up i mean you know, sure, I don't, you know how's, <laughs> how's that going to be you know yeah. on a number of levels so i think it is a problem uh, i think I, I, and, and the other thing that's really disappointing is for the labor party one of their big 
revolutionary issues has been the devolving of power away from Westminster to Scotland, to Wales and to Northern Ireland. Why haven't they done it in England? Why haven't they taken England and said, yeah, this is our argument and said, look, you know, either an English parliament or regional assemblies, I'd prefer that. I think it's a much better way to get... It's a civic argument, not a nationalist argument for me. It's not about having the flag on, on the parliament. It's about civics. You know, why haven't they taken that? They're, they're, they have an incredible blind spot about England and seen as our... Brexit kind of belongs to England in a kind of worrying way. There's, you know, these issues of, of, of devolution, proportional representation, they are not divorced from the situation we find ourselves in now. They can't just solve it by PR everywhere, but they would at least open up things a little bit more and make people feel like their voice is being heard. You know, we've exchanged a few tweets over the last couple of years <laughs> about have. particularly about I think the Labour leadership's position yeah. on Brexit and I think you've you've, if I remember rightly you know you've, you've always sort of put the case where it's kind of like they're playing the long game yeah. wait and see mm-hmm. do you still believe that and if so is that not the kind of somewhat cynical sort of triangulation that of course New Labour was, was famous for as opposed to a principal sort of stand like how do you feel about this idea that they're just well they're going you know, very, very cautiously. I, you're, you're talking as if Jeremy Corbyn is some kind of saint who doesn't do anything political, and I don't think that's true. I think he's, you know, he's, he's in a bit of a bit of a bind. Brexit isn't really his issue. He thinks there's much more important things out there. It's kind of been, you know, landed on his on his desk. And you got to remember that he got this gig without a huge plan behind him, like like Blair got it. You know, he didn't hit the ground running, as we know. So he's trying to deal with this as it comes. And again, the, the, the failure of the Tories to put any flesh on the argument, it's hard to know where to get a real grip on it. But if you look at the sort of things that John McDonnell is saying about the, the customs union and membership of the single market and the you know the changes in the European uh, uh, working directives and these kind of things, there is, I think there's clear blue water between what the Tories are now going into kind of absolutist mode because the Rees-Mogg's and the Johnson's are kicking off and Labour's ambiguity. I know it's ambiguous and I know people are really, really annoyed about it, but if, if Corbyn came out tomorrow and said, that's it, I'm going to overturn Brexit and keep us in the European Union, all it would achieve is to unite the Tories and revive the corpse of UKIP. We don't want to do that, do we? If we're going to get out of this, we don't need those... It's an ugly corpse. Exactly. Them zombies zombying around. So... Yeah. I think people again. I'm going to have to ask people to be patient with Corbyn. I know it's frustrating for uh, for a lot of people because they tweet to me about it. In fact, I find myself arguing more with FBPE people these days than I do with levers. That's part of my problem I've got, and, and, <laughs> and uh, I don't want to kick it out here. But but um, I think in the end, what Corbyn wants more than anything else is to be prime minister. And the route at the moment to being Prime Minister is through mitigating or overturning Brexit. And it's just got to be a situation in where public opinion moves significantly enough when the real we, when it all starts to come into focus. And I know your listeners will be saying, he's a leader, he should be leading public... Politics doesn't work like that. You know, Theresa May isn't being nailed to the wall about Windrush just because there were some articles in The Guardian about it, public opinion turned decisively on her and on Amber Rudd and the Tories. And you've got to put the ideas out there. And I think as when... Because Windrush has been knocking around for ages, but when it came into focus and we actually saw what it really meant to people's lives, public opinion changed overnight in a way that made me 
feel all patriotic. I'm coming over all funny now about it. <laughs> but but this, I think it'll be the same with Brexit. When we finally do see the reality of it, it'll be like, you know what? This is a cliff edge. We need to do something about this. And I, I hope there's enough momentum in the Labour Party, no pun intended, but 70% of the Labour Party members are in favour of remaining in the European Union. I'm hoping we can pick that torch up and, and use that because it ain't going to be the Tories that do that. You, like it or not, we're your only hope. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> he does look quite depressed. He does, he does. He does. <laughs> you, know, you, you haven't got an FBP on your, on your Twitter, have you? No, I'm easily persuaded by a man with a guitar. <laughs> can you you can old you music journalists are all the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure I agree, but he is holding a guitar. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they said that um, if I had an acoustic guitar, it meant I was a protest singer, so... Yeah. You can, you, play can you play something? something? I can, yeah. I'm going to play you the old full English Brexit. My neighbours don't drink at the local Or have kippers for breakfast like me The food that they cook smells disgusting They'd rather drink coffee than tea It's true that their kids are respectful they gave me their seats on the bus But it's just that there's so many of them That I fear what'll become of us I'm not racist All I want is To make things that I used to be Cause change is strange and no one is listening to me. I cheered when our side won the Cold War, spread freedom and peace all around. Now there's folks speaking Russian in Tesco's. It's a shame the wall had to come down I know some are fleeing from war zones To keep their young children from harm But my parents stayed put through the blitz years And me, I was sent to a farm yeah, the sun shines But sometimes this don't feel like it is my country But to say so Oh no, I never get no sympathy Once we ruled over an empire so it feels like some kind of defeat To respond to rules written by strangers And measure it inches, not feet We don't want to go but by jingo If we can't be in charge then we must 
But don't be offended, dear stranger It's not you, this is all about us But it's alright, alright I think I've found a remedy Yeah, it's alright, gonna be alright It's a full English Brexit for me. Thank you. I think I said inches instead of metres there, but no one will notice. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't had any Brexity protest singers covering that with all the... uh... No, no, I haven't. That's the kind of strange thing. Brexity protest singers, that's a terrible thought, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe like? right now they're writing sort of songs about Romanus picking up avocados and Mark's maybe Roger Dolce and Ringo Starr. Well, you need them. <laughs> that was Billy Bragg with Full English Brexit. Finally, it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule, where we save something for the future that we're going to miss if we leave the EU, or something that we'll need if we're out. Femi is our special guest. What would you like to put in the time capsule? Human rights. I mean, right now, um, the first thing that Theresa May plans to do post Brexit is to repeal the Human Rights Act. The EU is a body that was set up in response to the worst human rights abuses against people that were deemed to be foreigners or others. And the first thing Theresa May plans to do upon leaving that body is to lower our human rights protections because she thinks that they give too many rights to people she deems to be other. It's historically stupid. So, yes, human rights would be what I put in the time capsule. This time capsule is getting pretty depressing. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Femi Oluwale. What are you up to next? We're going to uh, do school school visits. Um, I think I'm going to go up to Scotland as soon as I can and to Belfast because uh, I'm going to try and get some opinions and box pops over there. So when you say school visits, so even if you've got people who are too young to vote, mm. is that where this idea of, of just getting people to talk to their parents yeah. comes in, even yeah. if they can't vote themselves? Well, I mean, uh, when we, I mean, we did, uh, we've talked to some youth clubs and people that were 16, 17, and when they do occasionally um, like class votes, as in how would they vote? It's like ninety percent remain. Mm. So I mean, and when you when you see that your kids are like that, when you see that your children are on the side of most economic experts, I think that's a strong argument that your kid that you should might want to listen to your kids. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks also to Naomi and Ian. We'll see you next time for our European language clip. Here's a bit of Swabish from our friends on the Brilliant Cake Watch podcast. Liebe Briten, Herr Uf mit diesem Scheiß Brexit und bleib nur drin. Now please be upstanding for Demon Is a Monster by Corner Shop and the roll call of thanks to our Patreon backers. A thanks from me to John Cooper, Kurt Fricker, Martin Atkinson, Alistair Gibson and Tom Owen. Hello and a huge thanks from me to Juliana Jolly, Alex Tucker, Joel Evans, March Irving and Martin Garthwaite. And finally, hello and thanks from me to David Whitaker, John Penny, Mark Rawson, Andrew Robert Burgess and Ben Roxby. See you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Pseudo production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.